It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Brian Will, a serial entrepreneur, two-time Wall Street Journal bestselling author, and an industry-leading business and sales management consultant. During the course of his career, Brian has created or co-created seven very successful companies in four different industries. These companies were worth over half a billion dollars at their peak. Brian has also done multiple turnaround projects for companies from startups through to Fortune 500 and helped those organizations drive billions of dollars in annual sales. His multifaceted background gives him the ability to understand and teach agile processes and principles and articulate their implications from multiple perspectives, from the development team right through to the executive board. From very humble beginnings in Ohio and quite an interesting childhood, as you'll hear from this podcast, Brian owns now a growing chain of restaurants in the Atlanta area, as well as a residential and commercial real estate business in Georgia and Florida. He also serves on city councils in his hometown of Alpharetta, Georgia. Brian Will, welcome into the corner office. Brant, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. This will be fun. We had a conversation, gosh, about a month or so ago, and uh, weather was a little different then because things were beginning to cool <laughs> off a little bit. Where does the podcast find you today? Holy crap, I'm in Atlanta, and yeah, it was 37 <laughs> degrees when I went out and did my walk this morning, and I thought, what the heck? I moved to the south. There you go. Well, I'm, I'm down in Florida. It was below 70, and believe me, that's chilly weather down here, <laughs> but I got my new bike out. My son gave me a bike for my uh, early Christmas present, so I got a good 14-mile ride in, and I got to tell you, nice. I'm loving the cooler weather. Loving the cooler Street weather. bike or a, street or a bike, mountain bike? Street bike. Well, it's, it's a crossover, but I do most of the time on the street. He he made me promise that I don't do a lot of off-roading. There, there's a history there, but uh, oh, I ride my mountain bike on the street. I'm not crazy. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, Brian, we always like to begin at the beginning and uh, we'll just talk about a little bit about your early years. Tell us where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah, Brian, I, I always tell people I'm one of the most unconventionally educated people you've probably met that has had some success in business. Um, I'm a kid who grew up in a rough household, uh, all kinds of abuse, you name it. I went through it, failed out of high school at 16. Not because I wasn't smart, just because I really didn't care. Uh, managed to graduate with a 1.2 after I got back in, back, got back in 1.2 GPA. Got kicked out of the house at 18, had no place to go. So I joined the military. And uh, I did four years Air Force and four years Army. Went back and forth between the two branches. And then uh, got out of the military and, and started trying to get a job and 
kept getting fired. I got fired as a waiter. I got fired working at a Little Caesars Pizza. I got fired working as a laborer on a construction crew. Just couldn't hold a job. And so finally I decided, you know, if I can't work for somebody else, I might as well work for myself. Well, let's let's scroll back a little bit because because we, we just did a pretty quick advance across an early part of your of your living. <laughs> Define the word rough for me. Uh physical, mental, sexual mm. abuse as a child. Wow. Um, so it was it was not a good a good thing. I had two two stepsisters and a stepbrother growing up, which turned out to be ex-stepsisters and ex-stepbrother. And I had three half brothers who turned out not to be my half brothers. We call them my ex half brothers. And then later in life found my actual two half brothers and my actual half stepsister. Listen, it's a Jerry Springer story. It's complicated. Uh, (laughs) You can need a spreadsheet and a pivot table uh, if you really want (laughs) to get into depth on that one. (laughs) Did mom work? Was she in the home or was she not around a lot either? No. So I'm, I'm old, right? I'm 58. And back in the seventies and eighties, they used to call us latchkey kids. Right. That, and literally that meant I had a key hanging on a chain around my neck. And when I got up, my parents were gone. And when I got home, there was nobody there. So I had the key to get in the house and basically we took care of ourselves. Um, got yourself breakfast, p- packed your own lunch when you had it. Did the whole thing. And, and, and that was part own. of the challenge. By the time I got into high school, I just didn't want to go anymore. So, uh, I stopped. I mean, I was still enrolled, but and again, got to remember, this is back in the in 1980, 1981. There were no computers back then. And I was in a small farm town, you know, which had one lady working, the office lady working in the office. So nobody really tracked these kids. And so I, my junior year of high school, I skipped the first 42 out of 90 days. Just didn't show up. And then didn't show up for the midterm exams. And that's when the office figured out that I wasn't showing up for school and they expelled me. Hmm. So, what part of the country did you grow up in? Where, 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 did you move uh, around a lot or were you in one? one no, I grew up in, in a little farm town in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, it was called Canal Winchester, Ohio. Um, so the funny story is that's, I always, I say this in one of my books. That's when I first, the first time I ever sold anything was after I got expelled, I went to see the principal and he was a good guy. And I said, listen, this is like a Friday. I said, listen, I know I'm expelled because I didn't show up. And so you failed me out of the midterms and you're expelling me from school, but will you make me a deal? because I really wanted to stay in school because I was on the track team and I was in the band. And those are my two things that I did in life. And I said, if, will you let me retake the midterm exams on Monday? If I get a B or better, you can give me a D and leave me in school. But if I get anything less than a B, you can fail me and I'll, I'll leave. And he was a nice guy. And again, this wouldn't happen today. And he goes, all right, I got nothing to lose. I'll, I'll give you a shot. And so I went home, I studied that week and I came back and I passed all my exams with a B and he let me stay in school Hmm. under the condition that I would never miss another day before I graduated. Um, So that's how I managed to stay in or get back in and then ended up graduating with a 1.2 GPA. Got your, got your diploma. Well, tell us a little bit about those extracurriculars that you said band and what was the (laughs) other area that you Yeah, I was a, I was a musician or at least I wanted to be again, coming from a small town. uh, I was like, the best trumpet player in our region thought I was going to be a famous musician. And so, uh, ended up switching out of that school and going to a school for the performing arts to be a music major and, uh, got into a school of really talented people. And that's when you realize, holy crap, there are people (laughs) that are so much better than me. I mean, it's like, it's like night and day. It's like, it's like a high school kid trying to play on a professional team. You know, it's just the difference. These kids were just really, really good. And so 
uh, about six months into that, I realized if they weren't all going to make it and if they weren't, I had no, no shot. Um, big fish in a small pond, went to the yeah. big pond, realized that you were a minnow. So quit music. Uh, I also pole vaulted in high school. I was really, that was the other thing that I was good at. You know, everybody's got their thing that they're good at. And those are my two good ones, playing yeah. the trumpet and, and pole vaulting. Was there a coach or a music instructor that, you know, had any influence on you in those days? You know, that is a really good question. And there was, I had a music coach. His name was Jim Dowdy and he was my junior high music uh, band director. And he was the senior high um, band director for the football games for doing the marching band and whatnot. And he was, he was one of the first teachers. This was from the seventh grade who ever took an interest in me and told me that I could actually, you know, not be a failure and I could actually do something and I could actually be good at this and gave me private lessons. And, uh, he was like the big one that I recall from school who, who actually believed in me when, when literally nobody else did. I actually found him on Facebook a few years ago and sent him a nice note telling him I appreciate everything you did for me. You probably don't remember, but you know, I do. Kept you on the line to reality. Huh? Yeah. And then what about a coach? You said uh, track, pole vaulting. I was a pole vaulter as well, believe it or not. Fun sport. Oh, wow. Nice. Hated, hated to run, loved the sprint. <laughs> oh, see, we were, I was a pole vaulter. I never had to do the run because I'd just be like, coach, I can't run, man. I'll pull, pull a hamstring or something. I won't be able to pole vault. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't as good a convincer <laughs> as you were. I, that was the thing I hated because, you know, he had to run those uh, bloody 440s. But at any rate. Yeah, that was Coach Locke, and he's no yeah. longer with us these days. But Coach Locke, again, we're talking small school, right? 80 kids in my class, kindergarten through 12 in the same building. Coach Locke was the football coach, the track coach, the science teacher, fit, uh, the phys ed teacher. Like, he, he did everything. And so during uh, – if you were in one of his classes and you were on one of his teams, whether it was track or football, automatic A, right? Didn't matter what you did, didn't show up, didn't matter. You got an A in his class. Once again, you can't do that today. Hmm. But uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, that, that's kind of the way we did it in the farm town. So you graduated, got your degree, let, kept your promise with regards to getting that B average. And made the decision about the military. Now, was that kind of the last resort or was you attracted to it? Tell us a little bit about your thinking behind it. Was All first right, the so army or first the Navy? How, how here's the story. So I wasn't allowed to not come to school, but at no point did they tell me I had to actually go to class. True story. I was skipping class one day, sitting in the stairs in the hallway. The guidance counselor came by. Her name was Miss Horstack, something like that. And she said, Brian, what are you doing? I said, I'm not going to class because I don't want to go. And she said, well, I can't have you not go to class. I will have to report you and I don't want to do that. So come with me. There's an Air Force guy here and he's going to do a little presentation. You just need to sit through it. And that way I won't report you. And I said, all right, cool. So I thought I'll go sit through this thing. So I went and he played this video and these guys in this video were like, six feet two with big muscles and they're marching and jogging and girls are fainting when they walk by, you know, and they're like, be all you can be. And, you know, be in the air. And I thought, holy crap, that is what I want to do. And so I said, the guy, I said, I want to join the air force. And he goes, yeah, I've seen your transcripts. We're not interested. Mm. By the way, that is the takeaway clothes that I learned later in life. And I'm like, what do you mean? You don't want me. Of course you're going to take me. I want to be in the military. Yeah, really not interested. I mean, if you want to go take the test, you can, but chances are we're not going to let you in. Well, that was just a challenge. Hmm. So I went and took the test. Do you think he did really that purposely? High. Do you think? That oh, I think the, it's the takeaway close yeah, 100%. Yeah. You know, 100%. I took the test, scored really high. And I remember him calling 
my house one day back when you remember back when we had phones that hung on the wall and you had like a 20 <laughs> foot long cord so you could walk in the other room and talk to people and they didn't hear you. So I walked in the dining room with the phone. I'm like, you know, cause I didn't want people to know that he wasn't going to let me in. And he goes, Hey, guess what? You scored really high. You can do anything you want to do in the air force. What do you want to do? Wow. And I was like, give me the hardest thing you've got. And he said, aviation electronics is where you want to go. And I said, all right, sign me up. So I signed up for the Air Force, graduated high school, got to basic training, and my very, you know, where, you, where you was your basic, basic? Where was your basic training, right? Lackland Air Force Base. Okay. Mm -hmm. You get there, you get off the bus. Everybody's nice to you until you get off the bus, and they start screaming at you, and everything you do is wrong, and they're just intimidating as hell. And I remember going to bed that night, and you're exhausted, and you have no more hair left, and there's a whole room full of people, and half the guys are snoring. The next morning at 4 a.m., these guys come running in the barracks with trash cans and trash can lids and hammers, <laughs> and they're they're banging on stuff, and they're screaming. They're picking up your bed and slamming it up and down. I remember that first morning I woke up, and I thought, what in the hell have I done? I have made a <laughs> horrible mistake. This is not where I need to be. And that was the beginning of my military career. So I did eight more years after that, four in the Air Force, and then switched to the Army. So tell us about that switch. What was your thinking behind that? You know, I always wanted to fly airplanes. I was fascinated with flying. I'm a pilot today. And uh, the Air Force will not let you fly without a college degree. Mm. And about my fourth year in, I was at this point working in crypto communications at Dobbins Air Force Base in, in, in Marietta, Georgia here. And I was complaining one day about the Air Force wouldn't let me fly. And I had taken all the tests and I'd scored high enough, but no education. And somebody said, you know, at the other end of the runway, there's an army base and the army will let anybody fly. You should go down and talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the truth. And I, I said, it's lunchtime. I'll, I'll be back. And so I drove down to the other end of the runway and I walked into this army unit uh, headquarters and they were like, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm in the air force at the other end of the runway, but I want to fly. And they were like, well, come on, son. Let's see if you can pass the test. And I passed the test and they were like, you're in. So I got out of the Air Force, switched to the Army, and I was a right seat in an OV-1 Mohawk for four years. <laughs> base at the same location? Base at the same, yep, same base. Didn't Absolutely. even have to give up your barracks. Well, yeah, I guess they probably put you in well, Army barracks, right? I was, in, I was in the uh, National Guard at that point, so uh, we were weekend warriors. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Great. So <laughs> if you look back at those eight years, which were really your first jobs, what was your takeaway of the, those eight years in the military? What, what do you think you learned two or three top things? You know, I, I've told this story many times and people talk about entrepreneurs and why they go through what they go through and what makes them uh, be able to get through all the crap that, that you're going to have to go through if you're going to start and build a business and scale. And I remember early on in basic training, we had people that wanted to quit. And I remember the drill instructors would be like, what do you mean quit? You don't have a choice to quit. Your only other option is to go to the brig. So you can either stay here in basic training with us or you're going to military prison, which one would you prefer? <laughs> and you were like, you mean, I don't, I have no choice. I have to, I have to move forward. And I, I think this is a, a quality in a lot of military people that they get from the military that helps them in business is there's just, isn't a quit. You don't have a choice. You just keep moving forward, yeah. tired, exhausted, hurt, whatever. You just keep moving forward. And that's how you succeed in business. You can succeed at any level as long as you don't quit and learn the lessons you need to learn so that you can grow into the person that you need to be to run the business that you want to run. So I, I think that 
gave me some discipline and understanding about not quit. I didn't know it back then, right? So we always go back and we look at our life and we try to connect the dots, or at least I do. And I think that's one of my early dots is just, I remember that drill instructor saying, you don't have a choice. You, you either do this or you go to jail. So you just move forward. And that's Love what that. I do. Love that. So eight years in the military and you go into business. So you go work for someone first. I know you've got several companies you founded. Got fired a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Got what fired a bunch. And what was that first job? What did you take coming straight out? Uh, construction helper. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was working on a vinyl siding crew, hanging vinyl siding on apartment complexes and I got fired after about six months. Then I went to work for little Caesars pizza as assistant manager and I got fired after several months. Then I went from there to try to be a waiter and I got fired from that job because I had worked a 12 hour shift and I owed them $6. I didn't make any tips. Um, and then I went from there over to Applebee's and became a bus boy. And I worked there for two years. That's when I met my wife. And uh, that's where I worked as a bus boy. And she was a waitress when we got married. Huge future, right? She was, <laughs> we had to go back to Ohio. We were living in Georgia. I had to go back to Ohio to get married. So I quit. we quit our jobs, went to Ohio. Didn't have a car. Didn't have a, a place to live. Didn't have a job. Got married and moved in my, with my grandma in her back bedroom. And a buddy of mine called me and said, do you need a job? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, you can help us mow grass. And I said, how much are you going to pay me? And he's like four bucks an hour, but we'll pay you cash. <laughs> I was like, cash, <laughs> I'm in, except you have to pick me up because I don't have a car. So here I am 22 years old, no car, no place to live, making four bucks an hour with my brand new wife. I always laugh and I say, well, why in the way, why in the world did you marry me? Like, that I was not the, uh, the epitome of future success. And then after two years of working after two years, after two weeks of mowing grass, I remember sitting in a truck one day and we'd been doing this for two weeks and we were mowing like 20 yards a day or something crazy. And we had this notebook and you write down every yard that you do and how much money you collect. It was like 20 to $25. And I added it up after two weeks and I thought we are generating $2,000 a week in cash. I make 160 bucks. Matt makes 200 and Steve makes 400. <laughs> that's that's 760. Throw in some few. And at the end of every day we would drive to the owner's house cuz we were only one of his crews and we would hand him all the cash or the checks and we'd go put the equipment away and get up and do it again the next day. Mm. And I thought that dude's making 1000 bucks a week sitting at the house in the air conditioning while I'm out here busting my ass for 160 bucks. Mm. One of us is stupid. <laughs> and I knew who it was. And I thought, anybody can mow grass, right? I mean, how hard is this? So after two weeks, I quit my job and I started my first business. I spent our, our marriage money on a lawnmower, a weed eater, and a blower. And I called my grandpa and asked if I could borrow his truck. And me and my new wife went out in the neighborhoods passing out flyers and mailboxes and started mowing grass. I would mow while she would weed eat and then I would blow and we'd move on to the next one. And that's how we started. And with direct competition with your previous employer, how did he take that? <laughs> he didn't care. <laughs> there are enough houses. I, I, don't think I was in competition with him. I was, <laughs> I was a dude mowing like 10 lawns a week. I remember the first time I made a hundred dollars in a day and I thought, holy crap, I was making 160 bucks a week on my job and now making a hundred dollars a day. I thought I was rich. So what I mean, was think next? about that. 
Yeah. Uh, I built that into seven franchises. Mm. Uh, we were doing about six or seven million dollars in revenue. Um, and just, as I like just to lawn say, mowing, just lawn mowing. And, we and went from lawn mowing to installation. We started moving up to multifamily properties. We made a couple of huge mistakes, though. As I like to say, that business did really well until it didn't. And then the entire company collapsed around me and I lost everything. My mm. house, my rental property, my cars, my motorcycle. I had a child with health problems at this point, needed open heart surgery, and mm. I couldn't afford insurance. So I didn't make the payments before I found out she needed open heart surgery. So my whole world collapsed when I was 29, I believe, 29 or 30, something like that. What were the, a lot business, of good lessons. Decisions. What were the business decisions that uh, you would have done differently? Uh, two things I've carried with me my whole career, and I tell people this all the time. If you have a business and the majority of your revenue comes from one source, you have a job. And in my case, we had all these crews, but we were doing work for a major uh, multifamily contracting company. And so 80% of my revenue came from one company, even mm-hmm. though it was spread out amongst all their properties. Well, the problem is they hired a new vice president of construction and he had a son in the landscaping business. And so they <laughs> fired me. Yeah. And you think these things can't happen, but they do. And so he fired me and not only did they fire me and I had all this infrastructure to support these seven crews. I also, they also withheld a $150,000 payment as security against warranty work. And I was living up to my eyeballs in debt. So my mm. first problem was all my business was concentrated in one client. My second problem was as the poor kid, as my income went up, so did my expenditures, right? I had a Mercedes, I had a sports car, I had a motorcycle, I had a house, I had a rental property. And I thought I was living high on the hog, but I was really in debt up to my eyeballs. My company had no financial security. We had no backup. We had no cash. We had no savings and my credit cards were maxed out. And so when they withheld the 150,000, I couldn't pay my bills, couldn't pay my mortgage, couldn't pay for my kids' health insurance, couldn't pay my vendors, by the way, because you know, in a business, you live off accounts receivable and accounts payable. Right. And we always do accounts payable six weeks later. So the money you bring in today is money that you're paying bills from six weeks ago. That's pretty much how business runs. It's either a 30 or 60 day uh, accounts receivable. So when they withheld the money, I couldn't pay all my vendors. I bounced Mm -hmm. 130 checks in one month. And the bank closed my account. They told me I was no longer welcome there. And by the way, I owed them $3,000 in bounce check fees. I'm like, I can't cover the checks. How am I going to cover the bounce check fees, you know? And now I can't open a bank account anywhere in town. So those are those are huge lessons that stick with you for the rest of your life that you never do again. How'd you dig yourself out of those? Uh, I sold everything I had. Mm. I mean, everything. Right down to, I, I kept my little pickup truck and, and some shovels. And as I like to say, I went back to me, a shovel and a truck because I didn't have any education. I didn't have any job skills. This is all I'd ever done. And so now it was back to just me passing out flyers and going out and digging holes and planting bushes. When I sold literally everything I had, my house, my cars, the motor, everything, I had $5,000 left over when I paid all my bills. That was basically my net worth at that point, five grand. I put that down on a house that I lease purchased and went back to digging holes. And that's when I met uh, my friend Sam, who for six months tried to talk me into selling insurance. And I kept telling him no. And finally, I said, okay, how do I sell insurance? And Hmm. he said, well, give me 500 bucks and come with me. And he went on one appointment and I watched him make that $500. And then he gave me 20 leads. And I went out and started selling insurance that week. 
And six weeks later, I quit that agency and started my own. And 18 months later, I sold it to a venture capital firm. Hmm. Uh, long story there, but we ended up creating what essentially is the first direct-to-consumer call center in the health insurance space in America because it didn't exist in 1996. And we cut a deal with a carrier to let us do fax signatures, which was huge back then. That <laughs> dates me. Uh, they allowed us to do fax signatures, which means we didn't have to run all over town. Or By this time, I built it up into about six states at that point. And we were faxing in applications out, faxing them back, faxing to the carrier. Built the second largest agency in the country for Assurant Health. And the internet was booming in 1999, and somebody came in and bought me my first venture capital deal. Hmm. Um, I call that ambitiously lazy. If you're ambitiously lazy, you're willing to work really hard and figure out how to do things so that you can not work as hard later. And that's the entire genesis of not having to drive around and meet people. I could do it all by fax. Then what happened after that? Did you stay with that firm for a minute or we, did you move on to your next They venture? bought me out and they tried to be a retail online health insurance company, kind of like eHealth if you're familiar with them at all. Um, but we quickly decided to take the, the uh, platform they were building, which was essentially a um, enrollment platform. And myself and the CTO, his name was Mark, had this brilliant idea that we could take our platform and sell it to insurance carriers and let the carriers give it to their agents to use to enroll their applications and we could build a SaaS model out, out of it. The CEO of this company was like, well, that'll never work. Nobody's going to buy it. That's not the way the industry works. And I'm like, you bought me and I wasn't the way the industry works. And he goes, all right, if you can do it, knock yourself out, but you get no salary. I'm sorry, you get no uh, support, you get no staff, and you get no budget. But if you can sell it, go ahead. And so we kind of stole one of our project manager folks, and me and Mark, and I forget what her name was, made a few phone calls, got a few appointments, and within six weeks, we had sold $6 million worth of SaaS software into the insurance industry, nice. including the two largest insurance carriers in the country. And the venture capital group that owned this, that had bought me, came in and they were like, holy crap, we have a new business model. So they shut down the retail sales side, moved it into this SaaS model. Today it's called Connecture. It went public uh, and then back private. They are the backbone for Medicare.com and 1-800-MEDICARE. So big success story on that one. But uh, funny story, after we sold that $6 million worth of software, uh, when the venture capital guys came in, they were like, Brian, this, I swear to God, this is what they said. Brian, we really appreciate you coming up with this idea. We really appreciate you selling it for us, but you're not really qualified to sell mm. software. So oh. we're going to bring in somebody who's really experienced in the software sales business. And we want you to go back you know, over to your cubicle and just manage the sales team over there again. And I got, I got really pissed off. Uh, and so I walked back to my cubicle, picked up all my stuff, put my coat on and walked out the door and quit. And they called me 20 minutes later, like, where are you? I'm like, <laughs> dude, are you kidding me? You wouldn't put me on the website cause I don't have a college degree. And now the division I start launch for you, you're kicking me out of because I'm not qualified to do it. So I quit and I opened a pizza place and that didn't go anywhere. So I started another insurance company. And we went and built another online insurance company in 2000 and 2001. And by 2003, we, alongside that, launched a paper performance internet marketing company doing lead gen. 2006, 
the paper performance lead gen company blew up to about $30 million in revenue, and we were acquired by a private equity firm. And then in 2008, the online insurance company was acquired by another venture capital firm, which is called GetInsured.com today. They power, I think, nine different states uh, on the state-based exchange selling health insurance. And uh, suddenly, I had three exits under my belt mm. in weird thing in, in the corporate world if you've if you've had some exits under your belt you're suddenly considered an expert in your field <laughs> you're worthy <clears throat> right you're, you're worthy. worthy now <laughs> you you are now worthy and so i started getting calls for consulting hmm. so my funny story brand is we had sold the second company and i was sitting in the office you know and we're sitting around with nothing to do and my phone rings and it's this insurance carrier and this woman who's the head of sales she calls and her name was laura she said brian listen uh, I have a division up in Minneapolis that's about 75 million top line losing a million dollars a month. Can you come in and tell me what's wrong with it? Hmm. And I was like, well, yes. She goes, great. How much will you charge me? I mean, I, I, I look, I'm a kid who was mowing grass five years ago. <laughs> right. I said, Laura, uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. She goes, come up for four days. I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, uh, that's, that's about right. Yeah, that, that, that's about right. Uh, I, I can do that. Now, mind you, I had millions and millions and millions of dollars in the bank at this point, but still. And I remember hanging up and I walked into my other partner's office, Steve. I said, Steve, this lady just offered me $100,000 for four days. I'm like blown away. He goes, well, you're an expert now. Like it was no big deal. I'm like, that is unbelievable. <laughs> and so I went up and started this consulting project and after four days, I went to see the CEO and I said, hey, man, there's seven things wrong with this company. And I had a PowerPoint presentation. I'd spent like three days building and I get through, it's seven points. I get to point number two and he goes, stop, can you fix it? And I was like, yes. He goes, all right, Laura, figure out how much to pay him. And I made like $750,000 that year <laughs> consulting, but we went from a million a month in losses to profitability in 12 months. So Basically, we made them 12 million bucks at a minimum for my 750,000. And then I got another call and another call and another call and the consulting thing just took off from there. So, And you've got several several companies now that you run and manage. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah. So I actually did another company that we ended up selling for nothing. It didn't work. Uh, Didn't lose money, but didn't make any. And then uh, it's a cliche that I was sitting in a bar one day and I thought, you know, I'd like to own a bar. And so I did. I bought the bar I was sending in. <laughs> and after about a year, I think it had lost $50,000. And I remember thinking, well, that wasn't fun. So I bought four more because that's what you do. You, you quadruple down on your losses. I sold the one that was losing money, bought four more, and they started making a lot of money. And, and over the last 13 years, I think I've gone through, I've had 16 different restaurants. I have four today. So a little baby restaurant chain does really well. Um, got into the real estate business, buying long-term rental properties. Started uh, writing books. I've got three books out. Two are Wall Street Journal bestsellers. And then uh, just last earlier this year, launched a um, co- coaching consulting company for entrepreneurs, really in the 5 to $50 million space. So that's what I'm doing today. What do you do for fun? You know, it's funny. I was talking to this guy, this guy, one of my clients, he called me last night at like 1130. 
Now, mind you, I was, by the way, I'm also on city council. I was sitting in city council till like 11 o'clock because we had a really long meeting last night. He called me at 11. He says, hey man, can you call me tonight? I'm driving back from Nashville, yada, yada. So I got up out of our city council meeting. I called the guy back at 1130 last night and we were talking and, and he, he asked me the same question. He goes, what do you do for fun? And I told him, I said, Leon, I'm weird. I don't golf. I don't fish. I don't hunt. I don't really watch sports, which I own a sports bar chain, by the way. I do business for fun. Yeah. This is what I do for fun. This, I enjoy it. It's not work to me. I love the thrill of the chase. I love the adrenaline rush of winning and the fight of losing. I think I think entrepreneurs at their heart are warriors, right? We're like mm. the Vikings of old. And we have to have a challenge. We have to have a fight. We have to have a battle. And if we don't have a battle, unfortunately, sometimes we go look for one to our detriment a lot of times. And I know I do that. I'll go look for a battle or I'll pick a fight with somebody, not physical, that I probably shouldn't but I do it just because it's that warrior mentality we have as entrepreneurs and really salespeople are the same way. We're warriors. So to me, that's fun. Business is fun. Winning is fun. Losing is fun because it's a challenge. I get to fight and try to win again. I don't know. Maybe I'm weird, but that's what I do for fun. Wartime versus peacetime. Wartime is fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, nobody gets hurt, fortunately, in my wars. But, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but well, if I win, it's like I do things... And I hate to say this, but my lawyer, like somebody will do something and I'll go to my lawyer and I'll be like, Hey man, let's go after this guy. He's like, it's not worth it. I'm like, I know, but let's do it for fun. <laughs> He's like, you're an idiot. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Looking back at all these ventures and, you know, kind of boiling down to those two or three key principles as entrepreneur, what would those be for you, Brian? Oh my gosh. Uh, the biggest one. And, and I kid you not is my first 15 years in business, I was hell on wheels. Mm. I didn't listen to anybody. It was my way or the highway. Particularly if things weren't going well, I would get more and more autocratic and it's, you do exactly what I say when I say, and weirdly enough, it didn't work, you know, but you don't see that until later. And it wasn't until I had this breakthrough moment with one of my partners. Um, and it is my first breakthrough moment where I made the decision that I don't know everything. I should listen to somebody who's been there, done that, that my entire world changed. My children's life changed. Generational wealth was created. My grandchildren's life changed. And it changed because I made a decision at some point, And I know the exact time to listen to somebody else who was smarter than me and mm. knew more about what we were doing than I did. And if I hadn't, I have a tattoo that says I'm in. And it's a story about me telling my partner when we get into this art, I'll tell you the story. You want to hear the story, Brant? Sure, absolutely. All right. So we had started this internet company. I had the insurance company. We started this internet company. And my my partner, Steve, he had, he had already built and sold companies. Very wealthy guy. He was probably worth 20 million. I was probably worth 20 bucks. And he comes and he says, I'm going to throw a half a million dollars into this company. You have equity. I have equity. But we both owe the money back. And I'm like, cool. Steve's throwing a half a million in. I have equity. He has equity. But we both owe it back. No, no worries. Nine months later, my, my accountant came into my office and he sat down and he said, you need to shut that company down. And I had the insurance company and that was the internet guys. He said, you need to shut the internet guys down. I said, what are you talking about, Frank? And he goes, they've burned through the entire $500,000 we've generated no revenue. I'm like, what? He's like, no revenue, 500,000 gone. You owe $500,000. This is going to bankrupt the insurance company. We were an agency. And I said, holy shit. 
And I remember going home that night, freaking out and talking to my wife at the time. And I'm like, I got to get out of this thing. I owe $500,000. I don't have $500,000. I'm freaking out. The next day, Steve comes into my office and he says, guess what? We're going to invest another $66,000 in more servers because we need more server space. And I said, Steve, Frank was just here. We ain't making no money. We can't afford another 66,000. He goes, don't worry about it. I'll throw the money in. It'll just go into the debt. I said, I'm already $500,000 in debt. I don't want another $66,000 of debt. I don't want to do this. He goes, Brian, it's going to work. I've been there. I've done this. You know that it's going to work. I'm like, Steve, it's not working. <laughs> he goes, it's going to work. I'm like, you haven't generated any revenue, Steve. And I'm literally freaking out. And he's, he looked at me and he said, he said, Brian, I'm going to make you a deal. You give me my equity back. We'll, I'll take all the debt on personally and we walk away as friends. I don't want money to come between our friendship, but you need to tell me right now, you're either in or you're out. And I remember staring at Steve sitting across from me on the desk for like two minutes, you know, with that ping pong ball on your head going, bing, bing, bing. Yes, no, yes, no, <laughs> yes, no, yes, no. And I remember thinking he's wealthy. I'm broke. Which one of us probably knows more about what they're talking about? And finally I said, all right, Steve, if we're going down, I'm going down with you. I'm in. And he goes, good. I don't ever want to have this conversation again and gets up and walks out of my office. 30 days later, we hit our first deal. We did 6 million in revenue, then 13, then 33. We sold the company for $80 million, two and a half <laughs> years later. Nice. And I, it scares me today to think about what my life would be like if I decided to listen to me and not him. Yeah. I did a podcast six months ago and the name of the podcast was quit taking your own damn advice. Because you don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> and my whole life changed. My family's life changed because I just told Steve I'm in. Yeah. Love so that. I have a tattoo that says I'm in today to remind me of that. Love that. So my point, the point of the story is listen to somebody if they know what they're talking about. <laughs> Good lesson. Good lesson, listeners. One last question, and we're just about out of time, but you know, you've obviously hired a lot of people. There's a lot of people that have come and go with your organization. If you had to kind of think about what the thing you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire. What is that? Of course, skill, but more so attitude. Mm. Um, I want somebody who's on the team who's going to be on the team and not there for the money, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I need somebody who's all in. Like I have this saying in my company, you're either on my team or you're on the team. And I have 150 employees, I think today, but I have a five person executive team that I call my team. So if you're on my team, you can't be on the team, which is everybody else. You got to pick which one you're on. If you're on my team, that means we're all dedicated to each other. We're loyal to each other. We look out for each other. We take care of each other. We back each other up. And that's the kind of people I want on my team. Love it. Brian Will, serial entrepreneur, two-time Wall Street Journal bestselling author, and an industry-leading business and sales management consultant. We could all learn a lot from you, Brian. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Brant, thank you very much. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. 
We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.